Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, 1 Corinthians, the entire chapter 13 from verses 1 through 13. This is the famous love chapter, portions of which are constantly recited at weddings. And I think that unfortunately we quote it so much that it tends to become trite, sort of fuzzy-wuzzy. So we're going to look, take a little bit deeper look at love in 1 Corinthians 13. Our context is this. In chapter 12, Paul has spent a good deal of time trying to instruct the Corinthians and trying to tell them that, look, we're all in this together. He was emphasizing unity, unity, unity in the body of Christ. No more factions. He's going to go later into chapter 14 and say, unity, unity, unity. Don't prophesy on top of one another. Don't speak in tongues on top of one another because that doesn't show love. And, of course, he mentioned Previously, in chapter 11, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, which didn't show love because people were getting drunk and eating, feasting, and becoming gluttons before the poor people got there to take the Lord's Supper. So the context of this is perfectly reasonable, given what Paul has been dealing with. He's talking about love. He's exhorting the Corinthians to love. So we start in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now here, where Paul refers to tongues of men and of angels, the tongues of men, of course, he's, speak, he's referring to speaking in tongues, which in another place he calls speaking in the Spirit, or praying in the Spirit. And the context here is, I'm sure, referring to what happened in chapter 14, where people in the assembly were speaking on top of each other, just yelling out, speaking in tongues all at once, so that nobody could get a word in edgewise, and people were stomping on one another. And so he's saying, look, if I do that, I'm not showing love. Now, he says tongues of men and of angels. Well, before we get to tongues of angels, let's, let me make a point here. Paul is not using this as an excuse to denigrate tongues. In the next two verses, he talks about prophesying without love and having faith without love and giving without love. Does he mean to denigrate prophecy? Does he mean to denigrate faith? Does he mean to denigrate selfless giving? Well, of course not. He's talking about the abuse, not the use. In verse 2, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy... But do not have love, I am nothing. Is he denigrating prophecy? He says, if I have the gift, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, but don't have love, am I nothing? Is he denigrating mysteries and knowledge, the mysteries of Christ, the knowledge of God? He says, if I have all faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. Does he denigrating faith? I don't think so. But, of course, we have to run down tongues every chance we get because I just had another experience last night. A young Christian woman a year old in the Lord, quarantined in her apartment because of the coronavirus virus quarantine, can't talk to anybody. She wants to know how to hear God. So I went through all the stuff about opening closed doors, about the peace of heart that guards you from all understanding, about following the word and all. And at the very end, I thought, yeah, and there's another thing you can do. You can pray in the spirit, praying in tongues. You know anything about that? Yes, our church had a big controversy, a big heated discussion over that. And see, that's what it always is. Always arguing about tongues. Well, hey, if you have faith and don't have love, you don't have anything either. Always talking about the abuse of tongues. Always talking about what Paul said here. They never mentioned, of course, the place where Paul says, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Not going to mention that verse, are they? And so now this girl has probably got a mountain of headwind against her before she accepts something that would really help her out there in her quarantine. Paul goes on in verse 3, and he says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Should we stop giving our possessions to the poor? Well, we stop speaking in tongues. Why don't we just stop giving our possessions to the poor? If I surrender my body to be burned, oh, should we stop 
should we start denigrating Christian martyrdom, all the Christian martyrs in church history, but if they don't have love? Anyway, you get my point. Paul is not trying to run down tongues. He's trying to regulate the proper use of tongues. He says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, now this men of angels is obscure, what he means by this. I think that the NIV Study Bible has the answer. Paul is using hyperbole here. Obviously, Paul could never speak with a tongue of angels. He's just saying that even if I did speak an angelic tongue, I'm speaking tongues of men when I'm praying the Spirit, but men's of tongues of angels, of course, he's never done that. Well, what does he mean by tongues of angels? Well, here's some options. Option number one, since tongues is called praying in the Spirit in chapter 14, I pray with the mind, I pray with the Spirit. Paul talks about tongues as praying in the Spirit. Well, in the Spirit, that's heavenly, right? So it's speaking in tongues as a heavenly language, and angels are in heaven. That's a stretch. I think it's just hyperbole he's saying. Whatever angels speak, even if I could do that, even I could be as, as exalted as that, I don't have love, it doesn't mean a thing. Here's option number two, what the, a tongue of angels could mean. What angels speak when they assume a human body. That's John Gill's idea. Well, and what might that be? An angel in a human body speaking an angelic tongue that nobody can understand, walking around and be like some zombie from outer space. I don't think that John Gill is anywhere near close. Well, he might just be suggesting that. He might not believe it. But whoever suggested I think they're wrong. Option number three, a tongue of angels is how angels communicate to each other. Here's a quote from John Gill. Not that angels have tongues in a proper sense or speak any vocal language in an audible voice with articulate sounds, for they are spirits immaterial and incorporeal. Though they have an intellectual speech by which they celebrate the perfections and praises of God and can discourse with one another and communicate their minds to each other. See Isaiah 6, 3. Well, okay, so this is angel, the language that angels don't use to speak to men, but they use to speak to each other. Could be. Or John Gill suggests option number four. The tongues of angels are a language which men could use to invoke angels, to adjure them, to gather them together, to disperse them. This was a notion common among the Jews. Well, I think that's a stretch. Or it could just be a metaphor, option number five, a metaphor for beautiful, sublime speech. Not that angels literally have a language, it's just that when they speak, it's elevated because angels are up there in heaven. Well, I don't know what it is. I think that's the simplest way to look at this is whatever the tongues of angels is, if Paul had it without love, it wouldn't mean a darn thing. He's just speaking hyperbolically. Wow, I'm thinking of the best examples. He's going to give some other hyperbolic examples as we go on in this chapter. Go on in this chapter. Now he says, but I don't have love. I am nothing. Now here is, now love is a word that everybody likes to use. Oh, in China, the English word love, all those Chinese people love to talk about English love, love, love. They would tell their boyfriends, I love you in English, but they wouldn't say, well, I need in Chinese because that's too direct, too embarrassing. <laughs> but anyway, here's Here's a definition from the NIV, my NIV study Bible. The Greek for this word indicates a selfless concern for the welfare of others that is not called forth by any quality of lovableness in the person loved, but is the product of a will to love in obedience to God's command. It is like Christ's love manifested on the cross. Now, you will notice that that definition has nothing about chocolates and roses and Valentine's Day, ooey-gooey, touchy-feeling feelings, the curse of single people who aren't married yet, or at least young single people. It's talking about selfless acts, even if the person that is 
The object of love is unlovable. You're not going to marry somebody that's unlovable. You're not going to have ooey-gooey romantic feelings about somebody that's unlovable. But Jesus died for us when we were unlovable because we were nasty sinners. Folks, that's love. And love is not a feeling. It's an act. And you notice that definition includes that. It is Christ's love manifested on the cross. That's what Jesus did for us, not his feelings toward us. And he has good feelings toward us. He has, you know, nothing wrong with ooey-gooey romantic feelings or ooey-gooey emotional feelings. But that is not the core definition of love. The core definition of love is actions. You do something for people, whether and whether they deserve it or not. That's what love is. Now, this is the love chapter. Of course, it's famous. Adam Clark says, Christians in general and knowledge that this chapter is the most important in the whole New Testament. Well, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's a nice saying that Clark said. Now, he said that, Paul said, if I don't have love and speaking with tongues of men and of angels without love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you noticed when somebody's walking down the street beating a gong? Everybody turns their attention to the gong and the gong beater. Well, that's the idea. I'm speaking in tongues. I'm calling attention to myself in the public assembly, and that's not good. A clanging cymbal, if you listen to these little street bands that go around banging on the cymbals as they go, the cymbals create sort of an inharmonious, noisy sound, just like speaking in tongues all at once would be in the assembly, which Paul is getting ready to denounce in the next chapter. We go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. Paul continues, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now Paul here, of course, is not attacking prophecy. He will talk about it much later in chapter 14, and he doesn't denigrate it there. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, second part of the verse, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And I didn't. I don't have the scripture here, but further on in the chapter, in chapter 14, he says, I would that you all prophesied. So obviously he's not running down prophecy, but what he is running down is prophecy without love. You know, it's possible to do anything without love, any good thing without love. As Paul mentions quite thoroughly in this chapter, even giving money to the poor, you can do it without love. Now, when Paul mentions prophecy and all mysteries, he's talking about a, a word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge and such. What he's doing is referring to the gifts, the speaking gifts, the charismatic speaking gifts, if you will, that he mentions in chapter 12, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. And he's saying, okay, I told you all about that. And I like all that. But if it's done without love, doesn't mean a thing. When Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecies and know all mysteries, folks, nobody's going to know all mysteries. It's a if. He's talking hyperbolically. He says, even if it were possible that I know all mysteries, if I didn't have love, it wouldn't mean anything. This is hypothetical. It's not actual Nobody knows all mysteries, they'd be God otherwise. And also, if he says, I have faith so, so as to remove mountains, that is also hyperbole. Nobody's got that kind of faith to remove mountains. That would interfere with God's natural order. It would be absurd. It's not what it means. Paul says, if I have knowledge without love, I am nothing. Now, here's a case of a Jewish rabbi that really had love that John Gill quotes at this place. He's quoting a Jewish rabbi named or he's telling about a Jewish rabbi named R. Yohanan ben Zakkai, who, quote, perfectly understood the scripture, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the traditions, the allegorical interpretations, the niceties of the law, and the subtleties of the scribes, the lighter and weightier matters of the law, or the arguments from the greater to the lesser, and vice versa, the arguments taking, taken from a parity of reason, the revolution of the sun and moon, rules of interpretation by... Gimetry, parables, etc. But 
John Gill says that that man, despite all that knowledge, if he doesn't have love, he's nothing. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul continues, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, of course, Paul is not denigrating giving all his possessions to feed the poor. What he's saying is don't give your possessions to feed the poor without love. You better love those poor people you're trying to help. Don't try to do it to ease your wounded, guilty social conscience. You better care about them. And my friends, there's a lot of that in this world. Giving to charity because you feel guilty. Voting for liberal Democrats so they'll give more money to poor people because you feel guilty. And why you live in a mansion like a limousine liberal. No, we don't want that. We want to generally be concerned about the poor. The poor are not a class. They are individuals with feelings just like everybody else. With dreams and desires like everybody else. And one of the best things you can do for the poor person is to give him hope that he can get out of his poverty because I'm telling you poverty is a terrible terrible thing if you've ever been to overseas and seen people living in poverty I just saw a baseball video about Mariano, Mariano Rivera the first man to ever be elected to the baseball hall of fame unanimously on the first ballot fantastic relief pitcher for the New York Yankees he grew up in poverty in Panama he used to use milk cartons for a fielder's glove he used to wrap up tape for baseball and use sticks for to hit. He grew up in very extreme conditions, and now he is a very, very rich man, and he's very, very famous. And I love that kind of story. Of course, not all poor people are going to do quite that well, but that's that's what we should aspire for all poor people. Help give them something to help them get out of poverty and of course the old saying is true is you give them a fish or a fish hook the fish hook is give them a fish to get them through the short term and give them a fish hook so they can make it in the long term but at any rate you do it because you love them not because you have a guilty social conscience paul mentions here he says if i surrender my body to be burned again that's hypothetical he never had to surrender his body to be burned however just a few years later than this maybe 10 years or so he was well at least people think he was executed under nero perhaps he is probably speaking hyperbolically here because there actually were no Christians in the mid-50s when this letter was written that actually were burned at the stake. It happened a lot afterwards, but not before. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that Paul is referencing martyrs being burned at the stake, and they say that many early Christians suffered that, but we need to qualify that a little bit because, as Albert Barnes says, that not many Christians had suffered that at the time Paul wrote this letter in the mid-50s A.D. Quote from Albert Barnes, Though Christians were early persecuted, yet there is no evidence that they were burned as martyrs as early as this epistle was written. Another quote from Barnes, quote, It is possible that some Christians had been put to death in this manner when Paul wrote this epistle, but it is more probable that he refers to this as the most awful kind of death rather than as anything which had really happened. And I think that's right. He's, he's doing hyperbole once again. He's thinking of the worst, the most incredible sacrifice that a Christian could do and yet do it without love. He'd still be nothing. He's trying to make a point here about love. He's not trying to give us an historical indication of how Christians were murdered for the faith, even though actually it did happen later. And by the way, if you read enough medieval history, one of the worst things that you could do was die by being burned at the stake. I mean, it was a horrible death. In fact, when in the Calvin Servetus controversy, in which Calvin is slandered and libeled so many times, defamed, he went to the magistrates of Geneva and said, "How about don't execute him by burning him? How about just hang him?" You know, he failed. He, Calvin failed to get his way, and they burnt Servetus at the stake. 
terrible way to die. If I don't have love, it profits me nothing, Paul says again, and Jameson Fawcett Brown say about that, quote, men will fight for Christianity and die for Christianity, but not live in its spirit, which is love. In other words, you can be a great defender of the faith and get martyred for it, but if you don't love people, you ain't nothing but a bucket of warm spit. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Paul defines love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, as I read that those four verses, how many times did Paul describe love as a warm, fuzzy feeling? The answer to that is zero. But how many times did he describe love with actions or, or forbearance? Not bragging, that's not doing a negative action. Not arrogant, that's not showing pride. Does not act unbecomingly, there's an action that it doesn't do. Most of it's negative, you know, that's the best way to love somebody is don't do bad to them. It's not selfish, it's not provoked, not taking into account a wrong suffered. Most of this has to do with what you do, not the way you feel. Let me read the translation of these four verses in the NIV, which in my humble opinion is a little bit better than the Home of Christian Study Bible, which I just read. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Keeping a record of wrongs, by the way, is the same thing as saying bearing a grudge. Love doesn't bear a grudge, folks. Love forgives. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Delighting in evil, it's not clear what that means, what Paul means exactly about that, but I take it to mean that love does not delight in evil and bad things happening to another person. In other words, Christians are not allowed the liberty of schadenfreude, I think is the, common, is the popular word now, just jumping up and down with glee when bad things happen to your opponent. Like the Houston Astros, they got caught for cheating after they robbed the Yankees out of two possibly two World Series, I shouldn't be jumping up and down and saying, ha, 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 they caught them, they fired their manager, and now everybody hates the Houston Astros. I'm not supposed to do that. And I will confess to you right now, I'm having a hard time with that because love is not easy. Love rejoices with the truth. In other words, love does not like falsehoods to be stated about somebody else. Love rejoices that the other person has truth told about them. Verse 7, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All right, let's break this down a little bit. Verse 7, Paul says, love believes all things. Love believes all things. What does that mean? I used to wonder about that. The NIV says, always trust. Adam Clark says, love always believes the best of others. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, quote, love, unsus love quote, unsuspiciously believes unsuspiciously believes all that is not palpably false, all that it can with a good conscience believe to the credit of another. In other words, a brother or a sister is innocent until he or she is found guilty. You don't automatically assume that Brother Joe is sleeping with his secretary just because you see him on a job somewhere with her alone. You don't just assume that he's shacking up with her. You wait for the evidence to come in. Now there's another thing Paul says, love is, does not act unbecomingly in the Home and Christian Study Bible. And the NIV says love is not rude. So the NIV interprets acting unbecomingly as 
unbecomingly as you don't be rude to other people. John Gill says it means you don't use filthy words about other people. You quote, observe due decorum and good manners. It is, is never rude, bearish, or brutish, and is ever willing to become all things to all men that it may please them for their good to edification. That's Adam Clark. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. Quote, I never wish to meet with those who affect to be called blunt, honest men, who feel themselves above all the forms of respect and civility, and care not how much many they put to pain or how many they displease. I'm going to make a political statement here about Donald Trump. <clears throat> now, Donald Trump has done a lot of good things for Christians. I don't doubt that, and there's a lot of Christians who support him. But I really have trouble when he calls people human scum and when he called Ben Carson during the Republican primaries a child molester and when he called Ted Cruz during the primaries or said his wife was ugly and that his father was in cahoots with a with the communist Castro. No, that ain't Christian because I never thought Trump was a Christian. I like many of my evangelical friends who think, oh, of course he's a Christian. Well, I don't think of course, of course. Just because somebody does something good for you doesn't mean they're actually a Christian. After all, what does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians 13? If I do all these good things, but I don't have love? Now, it is true that Ted Cruz and Ben Carson forgave Trump, and they said, well, that's just politics. I, but I'm telling you, I still have trouble with it. I mean, I don't like that. I, I, it's true that the people Trump is fighting are anti-Christian, anti-Christ, petty little anti-Christ, who hate God, who hate gender, who hate men, and men manhood and womanhood, and so forth. And they, and they hate God. I mean, just the other day, the leftists who took over the Virginia Assembly in the last election, there was this black pastor up there who was invited to open the session. He gets up and starts praying that laws would be passed to protect the unborn, and the Democrats walked out on him. Some of them, not all of them. And then the Speaker of the House banged the gavel and shut him up before he could say amen. So I agree. I'm glad Trump is blasting all these leftists. But I'm telling you, acting unbecomingly, acting rude... Maybe it's my culture. I'm from the South. Donald Trump's from the North. We're we're polite down here. I've lived in China for 23 years. They, oh, boy, do they believe in politeness. They can kick you out of something and feed you a big meal while they're doing it. I've had that happen several times. Smiling all the way while they're stabbing you in the back. <laughs> so, Jameson Foster Brown says, Act unbecomingly says this, Love is not uncourteous or inattentive to civility and propriety. In verse 7, Paul says that love bears all things. What does it mean to bear all things? The NIV translates it as always protects all things. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, quote, This word is also variously interpreted to endure, bear, sustain, cover, conceal, or contain. So it could mean to conceal the faults of others, not only to put up with the faults of others, but actually conceal the faults of others, which is a cl close meaning because if you put up with it and conceal it, that means you don't talk about it to others. They said this person is just really screwed up in this area, but you don't talk about it to other people. You put up with it rather than talk about it. Now, I will say this. This makes it hard when you have doctrinal heresy or moral failure in, in your church or in people that's close to you and you love. It's real hard to talk to them because we're supposed to believe them. We're supposed to believe all things. And so then when somebody comes to you, church discipline meeting is brought to the whole church or maybe to you individually at the second stage, and this person's sleeping with a secretary. Oh, no, no, no. I, I can't believe that. That's horrible. That sweet girl, she's happily married with three kids. She wouldn't sleep with this guy. He's the pastor of our church. He, oh, well, and that can become a severe hindrance. Ask the people at Willow Creek who couldn't believe it. So we've got, you know, we've got to temper this. We believe, but then when there's evidence, 
we receive an accusation against an elder with more, with more than one witness, that means we do receive the accusation. Well, you have to have witnesses, but you do receive the accusation. This is called being wise. Also in this passage, love does not brag. Paul says in verse 4, love does not brag. He perhaps is referring indirectly to those in Corinth who were using tongues for a mere display, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. He wants to rebuke that kind of activity. He says love is not arrogant in verse 4 because there were people with a party spirit at Corinth who were arrogant about everything. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Love rejoices with the truth. That means, quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the false charity which compromises the truth by glossing over iniquity or unrighteousness is thus tacitly condemned. Now, what Jameson Fawcett and Brown is saying here is that you rejoice in the truth. You just don't look at somebody's sin and say, well, no, they're not really doing it. No, you want the truth about them. Good, bad, and ugly in order to help them, in order to restore them. I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about bearing with others, concealing the faults of others, covering up the faults of others. That's true. We're supposed to do that, but that's not the same thing as covering up the truth. So we rejoice in the truth while we conceal faults. And, and that can be in contradiction and could create a little bit of tension. So you have to use wisdom, when to hold them and when to fold them, when you're talking about people's faults. Here's a proverb that's relevant, Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So we rejoice in the truth so we don't justify the wicked, but on the other hand, to rejoice in the truth means we don't condemn the righteous either. We don't spread lies about people. Again, it's actions, not fuzzy feelings. And verse 7, love is said to hope all things. That means you hope all good things happen to other people. And don't be jealous about it. And you hope good things will happen to them even when other, all others have ceased to hope in them. You don't give up on them. I tell you, one time there was this young, young woman in China who, let's put it this way, she was semi-civilized. I have never, she was, she made Dennis the Menace look like Mother Teresa. She was hell on wheels. She made, and I led her to the Lord, but she made me so mad. At one time I refused to speak to her for a year. She was horrible, just horrible. Now she got married to a nice guy down in Georgia. She's got a baby. She's, she's actually, after 10 years, decided to go to church, and she's praying, and she's still following the Lord. Don't give up on people. Hope, even when there is no hope. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, Paul says love never fails. Now, John Gill points out that doesn't mean that someone might fail to love at a particular time. He's just speaking in general. There's always going to be love. Even after Jesus comes back, there's going to be love. When Jesus comes back, there's not going to be spiritual gifts like knowledge and wisdom and prophecy and tongues. There's not going to be that, but the love is going to exist. It doesn't mean that love never fails, that people don't fail in their love. Human love fails all the time. And let's face it, that's not what Paul's talking about. Here's the, a quote from John Gill. Quote, it may be left, but not lost. The fervor of it may be remitted and abated. It may wax cold through the prevalence of sin. It may be greatly damped by the growth of error and heresy, which eat as do a canker, and may be much obstructed by an anxious and immoderate care and concern for worldly things. Yeah, that's human love. But God's love never fails. It burns bright and it never waxes, excuse me, it never wanes, it never disappears, it never fails. Now, gifts of prophecy 
or will be done away. Now, Paul doesn't say in this verse where they'll be done away with or when they will be done away with, I should say. But in verse 10, he does say that. He says, when that which is perfect has come, we'll discuss that when we get to verse 10, which is coming up right now. Verses 9 and 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, what does it mean we prophesy in part? It means that even the great prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel didn't know all of what they prophesied. They eagerly, they had to eagerly search their own prophecies to figure out what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell them. To prove this, we can read 1 Peter 1.10. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So no prophet ever sees everything fully. And so Paul is acknowledging that when he says we know in part, and he's talking about spiritual knowledge, words of knowledge, revelation knowledge. Well, and it's true also of natural knowledge too, but I think here he's speaking of revelation, spiritual knowledge. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. The reason I say that, that he's referring to words of knowledge is from the context. He's talking about supernatural charismatic gifts. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So whatever that perfect is, and we'll talk about that in a minute, when that comes, the part, the partial, words of knowledge, words of prophecy, revelatory gifts, they're going to be done away with. So now the question is, is what is that which is perfect has come? Now the word perfect means the end, fulfillment, completeness, maturity. But again, what in particular is Paul referring to? Well, here's some options. Here's Adam Clark's a suggestion from Adam Clark, which I don't believe anymore than I believe I can fly to the moon. He says that when the church reaches maturity, the perfect is here and prophecy will be done away with. When the church reaches maturity, really. And when, pray tell, will that be? If Adam Clark were alive today, would he look around at the church in America and say the church in America is mature? Please! Of course not. Not anywhere near maturity. church in America is in danger of losing its candlestick, in my humble opinion. So that can't be it. So here's another option. When the canon is closed. And this is what a lot of cessationists say. When the canon is closed, we don't need prophecy anymore because we got the Bible. And so then they talk about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and the heck with prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Now, since the canon closed somewhere around the 3rd century A.D., that means for 1,800 years or more, we have had no spiritual gifts, no tongues, no prophecy. And that which I do for an hour a day is a total waste of my time. Well, I have a hard time holding on to that or even giving the time of day to this interpretation that when that which is perfect is the canon of the New Testament coming, thus foreclosing the possibility that spiritual gifts exist. There's a quick refutation of that erroneous view. We go to verse 12. What's the first phrase? What does verse 12 say? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, if the then that which is perfect has come is closed in the canon, that means that Paul is going to be seeing Jesus face to face. Really? He's going to see Jesus face to face? I thought we only did that when we saw when we died and went to heaven. Paul continues in verse 12, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I've also been fully known. Oh, really? So when the canon comes, then when the canon comes and that which is perfect has come, then I will know fully? You're going to know, Paul is going to know God as fully as God knows him? When the canon is complete in the 3rd century A.D.? Folks, if you want to fight against tongues and prophecy, choose another ground to, to fight your battle on. I prefer you not do it at all. But if you're going to do it, don't use this silly argument that this is the closing of the canon. That is ludicrous. 
ludicrous nonsense. So what does Paul mean when he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with? Well, the perfect, when it comes, is when we see Jesus face to face. Again, using verse 12 as a contextual clue here. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, that's when the perfect has come. Now there's some options on when we see Jesus face to face. It could be the return of Christ, as the NIV Study Bible suggests. Gill says, in the state, in the life to come, which sort of doesn't say whether it's the return of Christ or whether it's the death of the Christian. Adam Clark says it's the state of eternal blessedness. The NIV Study Bible suggests it's the death of the Christian. So it's whether when you die you see Jesus face to face or when Jesus comes back at the end of time reestablishing his kingdom or fully establishing his kingdom, that's when we see him face to face. But whatever it is, it ain't the closing of the canon, folks. Now, why, when this happens, when we see Jesus face to face, will the the partial prophecies go away? Because you don't need to prophesy when you're Jesus face to face. Prophecy is supposed to give you a little bit of insight into the supernatural, and it's a, a partial insight. You still have to use your brain, your common sense. You've got to take chances. You've got to to operate in fuzziness when you don't know the future. You know, you've got to live like a normal human being, but prophecy just sort of helps you out. But boy, when you see Jesus face to face, there's not going to be any doubts about what you're supposed to do today, tomorrow, or the next day. Jesus is right there, and he'll tell you. You won't need words of wisdom because you'll have all the wisdom you need by seeing Jesus face to face. You won't have, you won't need words of knowledge because Jesus will be right there giving you all the knowledge you need. You won't need evangelism because everybody's going to be saved and so forth. We go to verse 11 and 12, 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, what Paul is talking about here is that compared to knowing Jesus face to face with that which is perfect to come, all this stuff we're doing down here is childish by comparison. There's nothing wrong with being a child, but it's better to be an adult and it's better to be with Jesus than have to rely on spiritual gifts while we're down here. He is not denigrating spiritual gifts any more than he's denigrating childhood. He's just saying that, hey guys, get your mind focused on that which is more important, which is exercising those spiritual gifts in love a more excellent way. Verse 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I've already quoted that verse. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So Paul is comparing the stage of when you need speaking in tongues, and prophecy is the his, his childhood speaking like a child. You know, I'm not going to need speaking in tongues when I see Jesus face to face. I'm not going to need a spiritual language to spiritually edify myself. I'm going to be completely spiritually edified. I'm not going to be in a bad mood or in a fleshly mood or an irritated mood. I'm not going to have unloving thoughts toward anybody. I'm not going to need to speak in tongues anymore. Of course, while I'm down here, I need it, but not when I'm up there. When Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, we always think of a piece of glass with a silver painted backing so that you can see yourself per perfectly. Paul didn't say that. He says, see in a mirror dimly, and that confuses us because of the cultural problems here. Because back then, a mirror, they didn't have glass that was backed with silver paint. They had polished bronze. And if you ever think about it, look into a shield, let's say one of those ancient shields that's polished. You're not going to see yourself very clearly. You can see sort of a dim outline. So that's what he means. Down here on this earth, our prophecies, our words of wisdom, our words of knowledge, our speaking in tongues, lets us see a little dim. Let's, let's just get an idea of what it's like up there in heaven. But by golly, when that which is perfect has come, when we see Jesus perfectly face to face, oh boy, it is not going to be dim anymore. That's why I love watching Christian near-death experiences. I emphasize Christian. There's a lot of fake ones out there. 
But the Christian ones that talk about seeing Jesus face to face, ain't nothing better. He says in the future when that happens, when he sees Jesus face to face, I will know fully. That means you're going to know everything you need to know. It does not mean you will know as much as God because you're not going to be omniscient because then you would be God. And that's absurd. But you will know everything that you need to know and you will be completely satisfied as a human being. You will know fully, just as you have been fully known, just as Jesus knows you perfectly. And, of course, that knowing is not just an intellectual knowledge. It's, it's a, a love knowledge. Like for example, Adam, loved, uh, Adam knew Eve. That means he loved her. So we have been fully known by Christ at that time when he f- sees us fully, when we see him face to face and he knows us fully. Well, let, let, me, let me back that up a minute. We see him face to face and we will know him fully like we don't know him now, just as I also have been fully known even before the time when that which is perfect has come. Jesus fully knows us now completely. There's not any one lack in his love or his knowledge about us. We go to verse 13. Oh, by the way, let me make another little comment about cessationism. You know, cessationists love to say we don't won't need tongues anymore. They usually say when the canon is closed, but even some of them don't believe that that verse refers to the closing of the canon but rather when we see jesus face to face perhaps and they say say you don't need tongues anymore therefore they're not important well no there's other gifts that are very important that we still need today for example evangelism you're not going to need evangelism when you see jesus face to face are we going to say well let's do away with evangelism why is it the cessationists like some gifts but they don't like other gifts what is it that bothers them about the supernatural does it scare them are they scared it can't be managed are they constantly looking at extremes, like the Corinthian church, for example, and say, see, they're at extremes, so therefore let's just shut it down. How about the gift of helps? We're going to do away with that? We don't need to help each other now? In heaven, you won't need to help each other. You're going to have all the strength that you need. So helps will be done away with. So we're going to run down helps like we run down tongues? How about teaching? You'll need teaching in heaven? I don't think so. You're going to know fully, but we need it now. Or, or should we just say teaching should cease? Why is it that just tongues and the supernatural gifts? have to cease. Why not all gifts that we don't need anymore when we see Jesus face to face? Why shouldn't they cease today? 1 Corinthians 13, 13, last verse. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Of course, this is a famous verse always quoted at weddings. Let's take the words word by word. Now, he's talking about now before that which is perfect has come. And he's going to say faith, hope, and love abide. That means they're going to stay forever. And what he means is they remain. Abide means remain. And what he's getting ready to do is make a contrast between spiritual gifts that cease, but love is going to keep going. Even when we see Jesus face to face, we're still going to have love. We've got love now, and we have love then when that which is perfect has come, and we see Jesus face to face. Now, faith, of course, is the essence of things not seen. It's close to hope, but there's a little bit of difference. Faith is believing in things one cannot see, whether past or present. Hope is believing in things that one cannot see but are expected to happen in the future. You have a confident expectation of something that you cannot see it will happen in the future. It's a little bit different, and it's not a wish, not a mere velleity, as they say, not a mere wish, I hope, that Jesus will come back. No, it's a confident expectation of the future, not a, a, a probable and maybe and by golly, it, it'll, it'll be a million to one shot, but I wish it would happen. No, it means I hope, I expect it to happen. Now, let's look a little closer at this word abide. If you mean abide, if Paul means abide to mean last forever and ever and ever, can't be because faith is not going to abide when that which is perfect is to come. Because if we see him face to face, you don't have faith because faith is the essence of not seeing. But we are seeing Jesus face to face. So faith's going to die when Jesus comes. Hope's going to die too. We don't Because hope is something you don't, can't see. 
a confident expectation that something in the future is going to happen that you can't see. That's not going to happen when Jesus comes back because you're going to see all what's there. But love's going to abide. That's going to go forever. So love is not only greater than all the spiritual gifts. As far as longevity is concerned, it's also greater than faith and hope. But since Paul includes faith and hope with love and he says they're going to abide, I assume he means they're going to abide during this life. And in the case of love, it's going to abide forever. The greatest of these is love. Why is it greatest? Probably because it's going to abide forever, even after Jesus comes back, but faith and hope will not. Paul, interestingly, also talks about faith, hope, and love in another passage that's never quoted in this context. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. There's faith, labor of love, love, and steadfastness of hope. It's faith, love, and hope. It's a different order, but there it is, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. So love is greater the greatest of these, faith and hope, why is it greater than faith and hope? Because it outlasts all the spiritual gifts. Faith and hope won't outlast the spiritual gifts, but love will. Now, I just finished saying that faith and hope abide now before that which is perfect has come and before we see Jesus, Jesus face to face. The word now tends to point that out. But now, faith, hope, and love abide. So we could say that faith, hope, and love remain now before Jesus comes back. But the greatest of these is love because that love abides even after Jesus comes back or even or after we see Jesus face to face when we die. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the love chapter. We'll start with chapter 14 in our next audio. We'll talk about the vexed problem of spiritual gifts and the administration thereof. Hope to see you then. And I hope you enjoyed this audio.